The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, we do have a great privilege in addressing you as Father. You have won us a great privilege in being able to address you come into your presence and to lay before you our concerns and to seek from you grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. What a marvelous thing you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, this morning for this, your people here. Lord, most of us here know you. Some do not, I am sure. As we gather here as your church before you, I ask you, Father, to do a work in my own heart and in the hearts of each person here in this room to cause this little piece of gospel blessing to flow and to fill Paul wrote here in Romans that you are a God of hope. And he prayed over that church there. And and I ask you for this church here that you, the God of hope, would cause this your people and that you would cause those who are not your people to come in. To come by faith and be yours. You would cause your people to know and to live and to walk in joy and hope, believing. There is no joy and hope apart from believing. There is joy and hope in believing. There is joy and hope in the Gospel. And I pray You would cause us, Your people, to believe the Gospel and to find joy and hope that You, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would cause us all to abound in hope. Make that happen today, Father. Make it happen as we listen to an ancient text. We see David, and we see some of this hope in him. Would you open our eyes to help us to see it and understand it, and then embrace it in the same way that he did, on the same ground that he did, to draw out from the same well life-giving water. Fill us with hope. joy, peace in believing. Do that work here in your people, Lord, I pray. Send your Spirit among us in power to to run through the room and to run into each individual heart and have His way within us. Lord, do that for our good and for your glory, I pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 16. Last week we saw in chapter 15 Absalom plot and then initiate his rebellion against King David. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel, it said there. He deceived them bit by bit, deceived them into backing him by offering him what looked good to them and what felt good to them and what affirmed their own innate rightness. He appealed to them in deception and drew them after and more and more listened to and then followed the voice of this king, Absalom. And so the real king, David, had to flee, leaving Jerusalem with his faithful remnant. That's what the second half of the chapter describes. 
David rejected in going out on another exodus of sorts as he goes out of the city, passing on and passing by. It was emphasized there, passing as he goes out into the wilderness to wander. Another exodus of sort of sorts, which is an allusion backwards to the exodus of, of Israel coming out of Egypt, going into the wilderness to wander and be tested by God, found faithless. It's also then an allusion forward to another son, another Israel who was sent out in the wilderness and tested and after 40 days was found faithful. So we see this, this pattern, this type developed in the Scripture and it's, there are other places where this type is touched on as well. Of a son sent out and tested and found faithful. And it points us all towards Christ. A very big picture here. We're meant to see that in David to point us towards Jesus, to, to see a model that we are to follow, what we are to worship, and, and also in the text to see a little, a little help in this belief, a little help in hoping. Because David, David has a need and, the, and God responds. David prays, help me with this counsel from Ahithophel. And God sends his friend Hushai and, and answers his prayer. He sends him out to test him in the wilderness, but he is with him to help him. To where God is. Testing us as we walk through the wilderness, but with us to help us all along the way. So we saw last week, and this week then in chapter 16, we continue on with David as he journeys out towards the wilderness. And we see more of his, more of his faithfulness as again he is challenged. And we see in it a model to follow, and also we see in it the ground from which that faithfulness comes. There is something that is sweet here. I opened by praying, along with Paul in Romans 15, but there's something that is sweet here in this passage that I, I asked, as I prayed, I asked God to, to make clear to us that something would grow in you, a hope, a joy and a strength and a peace in believing. David responds here in a way that is what you are supposed to do and what you can do. You can find joy and a strength and a peace and a rest and a hope in believing, just like David. So may God press that into you today as we look at this passage. I'm going to read chapter 16, verses 1 through 14, and then pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details before drawing out a couple of observations. 2 Samuel, chapter 16. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, 
What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Is he cursing because the Lord has, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Second Samuel 16. This passage contains two narratives, both of which involve descendants of the house of Saul. First we have Ziba, servant of Mephibosheth. We last encountered these two men back in chapter 9. Just kind of brings them up, assuming that we remember them. We met them back in chapter 9 when David was safe on his throne, now looking to show kindness to the house of Saul. And this Mephibosheth was discovered, a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both of his feet from a childhood accident. David did him a great kindness by restoring to him all the land of his, of his household and, better yet, bringing him in as if he was a son in his own house, bringing him in, this Mephibosheth, and seating him at his table to let him eat there as part of his household. It was an amazing kindness. Now here comes his servant, Ziba, when David restored the land to Mephibosheth, he also gave him Ziba to work the land, he and his sons. And now Ziba comes without Mephibosheth to greet David in his flight and to bring him all these provisions. And when questioned about Mephibosheth, where's your master? Ziba lies. Oh, he stayed in Jerusalem, thinking that now Israel will give him back the kingdom of his father Saul. This is surely a lie. There is zero chance that Absalom is going to give Mephibosheth the kingdom. That's not going to happen. All of Israel has been rallied to Absalom's side, and they are not going to put on the throne a, a man who is lame in both feet, is, is incapable of ruling, and is from the wrong family line. Ziba lies. But in the heat of the moment, it looked like another betrayal to David, the uprising of the house of Saul. He had done good to them, and here they are stabbing him in the back again. And so he... In, in a rush, seeing this as betrayal, gives the land that he gave to Mephibosheth, he now gives it back to Ziba, which is exactly what Ziba wanted. And having obtained what he wanted, cleverly, carefully, he gives him just enough provisions to be a snack. They're going to go through that by lunch. And then he goes back. He does not accompany him into the wilderness. He goes back to the land. Mission accomplished. Which brings us to the next man from the house of Saul, Shimei. This man came upon David's column and he came, it says, cursing continually, which is not swearing. It's a, a pronouncing of, of condemnation. It's a, a constant shouting out, a showering on David oaths of, of condemnation. Pronouncing guilt on him speaking a curse against him. And verse 6, he threw stones at David and all of his servants, not just trying to hurt him. This is not just chucking rocks at somebody. This is a mock, joined with the, the curses of condemnation of throwing of stones, it's a mock execution. Stoning of an accursed one. Here the Lord, he says, has visited on you all of your guilt for how you slaughtered the house of Saul, which of course is not true but he's shouting it out and pouring it on him. And you are worthy of and are now receiving the death sentence. Let me act it out for you. That's what he's doing. While all the people and all the bodyguard all around David on his right and left are suffering the same and are hearing this said of David. It's all very shameful. It's humiliating. He's wrong about the facts, but... David knows there is something to it, which is why he says the Lord has told him to do it. 
He's not guilty of the blood of Saul, but he is guilty of the blood of one of his mighty men, incidentally, who are all around him right now, minus one, minus Uriah. And he took the wife of Uriah, daughter of another one of his mighty men, who's probably standing right around him right now. So David knows that what he's actually saying is not right, but sort of what he's saying is sort of right. And this is what God has brought. What he said he would do in chapter 12, he has brought now. A sword from my own house. Consequence for my sin. And here I am feeling it. It's shameful, it's irritating, it's grating, it's insulting. To David and everybody else, Abishai finally gets fed up with it and wants to take care of the problem. David restrains him, turning his and our attention to the Lord. What he poses as a question in verse 10, he affirms as fact in verse 11. Maybe the Lord has put him up to this in verse 11. The Lord has, in fact, told him to do this. All of this comes from God. God is doing something in this man's offensive tirade. It's not right. Who am I to blame him? Of course the descendants of Saul don't want me. My own son doesn't want me. Verse 12, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. Literally, actually, it's look on my wrong. Some of our English translations put it such that it seems that He's talking about this cursing from Shimei. That, that comes up in the next phrase. Repay me good for this cursing. That's the cursing from Shimei. My wrong, he's talking about his chapter 11 iniquity. The Lord looking upon my sin. That's what's going on here right now. And it may be that the Lord will look on me in this situation and then as I face this cursing will repay me with good. But he says, hoping, in verse 12, like a parent, he's thinking of God here like a parent who submits his child to discipline, but then as he watches the child endure it, he's grieved by it and has mercy. So David's thinking about God right here. And it's from that then that he moves on, walks on, showered with shame, patient in perseverance until weary, They all reached the Jordan. And there, not before, there, when they reached the Jordan, they were refreshed. That's the passage. Fourteen verses, two stories. The first one is given primarily to set us up for what comes later in the book. So I'm going to focus most of my attention on the second narrative involving the cursing from Shimei. I'm going to make two observations from it. Here's the first one. Something that we see in how David is, and the second one will be about how David got there. Here's the first point. The chosen Son of God is marked by meek perseverance when attacked. The chosen Son of God is marked by meek perseverance when attacked. I'm using the language here of chosen son of God because we are looking at David initially. This is David who was uniquely chosen as a son of God. It's that language of enthronement. He was picked out to be God's king over his people, over his whole kingdom. And what we see here is an identifying mark. This shows something about David, shows that he is the one that God's hand is on, is a mark here, this meek perseverance. He faces a biting and bitter, verbal, and therefore an emotional attack. Let's talk about David first, but more than just talking about David, we're also going to be talking about all of the sons and daughters of God. This, this is something that's true for all believers. I'm going to turn this to talk about us. And the reason we can tell this is supposed to be what we're like is not just because this is a good and positive response, but because of where it comes from. David draws this response out from somewhere. He draws it out of of a deep well that is uniformly available to all Christians. So drawing this response out of the same well that we have, 
this is what's supposed to come out of us, too, when we face similar attacks. So I'm talking about David, but then also all of us here, too. We see in here, meek, persevering. That is, a, a pressing on without sinning, meekly. Meekness. Meekness is not simply passivity or frailty or quiet, disengaging, disinterest, resignation. It's not like being a limp, wet noodle, weak, without strength or conviction. On the contrary, meekness is very strong and very tough because it is the deliberate, conscious setting aside of something that could be grasped, that could be held onto, that could be reached for, but you consciously decide to set it off. That's difficult. That's hard. It is not a lack of passion or desire or ability to get status or rights or goods or security. Not a lack of that. Rather, it's the conscious subordinating of the desire and the passion and the want to get. I want to. I could. Maybe, maybe I'm even entitled to, but instead, I see it differently and I set this aside. And I say no to that. It's meekness. A concern for others rather than self. A turning of the other cheek, as Jesus taught in Matthew 5. A giving of your cloak. When your garment is demanded of you, you give that and your cloak. When you're required to, to walk one mile, you walk the extra mile, the second mile. Setting aside your own rights and desires. That's a meekness, a humility. That's David here. Rejected from the throne. Chased out of the city. Chased out of the land, in fact. Betrayed by, so it seems, Mephibosheth, one to whom he has done great kindness. Cursed by Shimei. All of the, a false accusation from start to finish. David is meek. He is a meek perseverer, one who presses on, moving on past an offense, seeing the great temptation, surely, to set it right. He is that. And it is... Men and women... I feel like I'm talking to you about something here. I'm describing somebody in this text. And the great danger here is that it, it will fly up here and in your minds it will be interesting information about someone in the text. And I need to, I'm going I'm to say this, but I need God to make this move from here to here such that you see it as not just something that was, but something that should be, that must be. Because there is, there is David, there is the chosen son here responding meekly in the face of, of rejection and accusation and cursing. The mark, this is the son, the chosen son. And that is just like some other chosen son, is it not? Like another one who turned the other cheek and was silent before his accusers and did not proudly reach out and grab what was, what was supposed to be his, what should have been his, did not fight against what was wrongly said of him. Men and women, this is David, the son, and it is another son, and it is to be you. And it has to move from here to you. Oh, that God would grab you with this and you, you would see, not just interesting, that's how David was, but you would find in it a marvelous mark, a, a testimony about what Christ is to be and then you would find, that's what I'm to be and in that moment you would find some conviction because you're not that way. 
David and the Son of God and all sons of God. And you're not that way. Now, in saying that, there is, there should be, by, by God's grace, there will be some conviction there. But if you are a Christian, all conviction from God, if you are a Christian, all conviction of God should land on you like, like this. Not like that, like, like this. It should land on you, and it should be a weight on you, but it should not strike you. But it should land and rest, because you see if, if the conviction touches you, you see the gap between what you are and what you are to be. And you see in there some sorrow over, I am to be a testimony about what God and God's people are like, and I am not that way. I am not meekly perseverant in the face of attack. I, in fact, rise up and demand my rights all the time. Oh, God. And it would rest on you. You would say, help. The second point is irrelevant to you. Until you get there. The second point is help. But you don't care if there's any help unless it rests on you. So may it rest on you. And you see, there's a gap here of what I am to be and God, I need help to close that gap if I am to be, if I am to be a faithful testimony of who you are and what you are like here in this world. You should be like this. But take one more turn on this. You really want to be like this. You want to be, if you think about this, you want to be meekly perseverant in the face of attack. There is nothing sweeter in life. How many marriages are ripped apart because there are two people who are not meekly perseverant in the face of attack. But in fact, quite the opposite. Rise up and demand. When someone makes an accusation, when someone, my spouse, this one who is supposed to be near me, this one for whom I have done such great kindness, rises up and says something, implies something, accuses me of something, I rise up and wreck it all. Can you imagine husband and wife, meek, meek and persevering, sweet, sweet. You want to be like this. Parents and children, the Bible says to fathers, do not exasperate your children. There are commands about mothers and children. How many, not husband and wife, how many parent-child relationships Oh, are just difficult because there is there is no meekness. There is only a demanding of what I should get and a very careful desire to clarify what is true and what is right. And I will set you straight when you say something wrong about me. Friendships and workplace relationships, the whole world, put it in every relationship in the world, Meekness is sweet. A meek, persevering attitude in the face of attack creates sweetness in relationships. It would heal so much of your hurt. You want to be like this. You want your spouse to be like this. You want to train your children to be like this. You want to grow up and become an adult like this. But you aren't. There is instead a, a great pride that sits right below the surface and is very easily, the, the surface is very easily pricked and it erupts out. A, a, a pride that, that demands and gets frustrated and gets angry and wants or failing to be able to get. Instead, it is a wounded pride that mopes and wallows. It is a sad thing. David walks in the face of biting, 
long-standing. The guy followed him on the hilltops. They couldn't even get away from him. He walks under that quietly, meekly, pressing on, not retaliating, accepting the cursing. We are required to be like that. It is the mark of all of the sons of God, all of the daughters of God. And you want to be like that. It would create remarkable sweetness in all of your relationships. How do you get there? David marks it out for us. But again, I say, I'm going to talk about how until you want to get there, what I'm about to say does not matter. Just be more information. So God, at this moment right now, must come on you and say, with a resting of a conviction, you must be like this. And maybe a salting of your tongue for a desire, a thirst, I want to be like that. And then he will say, look at how. So it brings me to the second point. I'm going to express this as an exhortation, but notice that it is also an explanation. Persevere, meekly persevere, in hope that God will bring good in time. Persevere in hope that God will bring good in time. Faithful goodness of God is reality. And we persevere meekly amidst all sorts of afflictions and troubles, hoping that God will bring good to us eventually at the right time. David meekly perseveres here. And the text tells us why. It tells us what's on his mind as he does so. Abishai wants to go solve the problem. And he says, no, the Lord has put him up to this. The Lord has sent him to do this. So initially right there we see David turns his mind Godward. He doesn't say to him something very, very earthly, practical. You're never going to catch him. As soon as you leave the road and run after him wearing a sword, he's going to run away. You're never going to catch him. Or, who cares? It's all wrong anyway. What's the use? Violence is wrong. He doesn't give any of those kinds of answers. He says, the Lord has put him up to this. So he immediately looks to God for cause. There's the start. And then even more importantly, he looks to God for relief of some sort. Verse 12, it may be that the Lord, this is David thinking about the Lord again, about what God may do. He doesn't presume to know all the mind of God and what God will do, but it may be that the Lord will look upon me in my iniquity and not just bring the consequence, but also may bring good to repay me for enduring this consequence. So verse 12 says, It may be the Lord will look on my wrong, the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. Shimei has all the facts wrong, but David knows there's something appropriate in it. Like he said back in verse, in chapter 12, David knows God has brought the sword from his own house as a consequence for his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. Making him to feel the fear and the pain and the loss. Carefully. Not as punishment of wrath for his sin. We've talked about this before, but I need to state that again. Don't forget it. The Lord told David in chapter 12, Your sin, David, I've forgiven it. I've removed it. I've taken it off of you. David is forgiven. Forgiven. 
He does not stand under condemnation from God. That's settled. I need to be very clear about that. Because when I talk about consequence for sin, we have to talk about consequence for sin separate from condemnation, separate from wrath, from unforgiveness, from judgment. It's extremely clear in this story that God has removed that and set that aside and still brings consequence. So we need to be very clear there. God still has a purpose. Gracious purposes. Other than wrath. Has a purpose in bringing this and these consequences to David. Many, perhaps many we don't know, but some we can understand very clearly. A purpose to to express to David and to all those in his day who would see this and to those in our day who read it and see it. That yes, indeed, sin can be forgiven. And and it really, 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 really is forgiven. And yet, also along with it comes extremely painful consequences. This needs to be seen. Is it not common in the church today? Oh, I'll be forgiven of that. I hear it all the time. From people who profess to be Christians, who knowingly embark on something that is at least questionable, sometimes clearly sinful, God will forgive me. That may be. This story would say, that may well be. If you are a Christian, He has already forgiven it. And yet there may well be painful, destructive, catastrophic consequences for you and for others around you. And it is good and gracious of God to bring consequence, to communicate that to David, to those who see it, and to us who see it in writing. To know this. The purpose of God. So see and and understand that, that God, apart from wrath and apart from condemnation, still brings consequences. David looks at that and understands it. God has done this. And though Mephibosheth apparently and Shimei, they all mean it for evil, the God in whose hands I sit means it for good. It is a gracious work that God is doing in this consequence in my life. Meekly, I will walk through it. He looks to God as the cause, as the origin of this cursing that he's enduring. And verse 12, as the reliever of it, God may look upon me and repay me for good for persevering through this cursing. I want to be sure that I sow in righteousness right now so that I may reap good. That's what he says. Why can he say that? What I'm asking here, that's what he says. How does this come to you? He gets that meek, persevering, that marks him and is supposed to mark us, He gets that from somewhere. By accrediting the cause and the relief to God, how does He do that? Same way you can do that. He knows God. To use New Testament language, David knows and believes the Gospel. And he knows and believes the God of grace in the Gospel. And so David knows that when he said to me, back in chapter 12, years and years and years ago, that your sin has been taken off and I have put it somewhere else, that that really happened. He took it off of David and put it onto another son who meekly endured all kinds of accusation and rejection. Who meekly then turned the other cheek in the face of his accusers and when slandered was silent like a lamb led to the slaughter and went up to the cross and died for the sake of my sin and yours, dear Christian, being taken and thrown away. And so David knows and you must know that you stand actually do stand. Christian, really, you do stand in full favor before the Lord. All of your sin, 
gone. You stand in full favor. And so whatever, whatever God does to you, for you, around you, next to you, over you, is for your good, not for your destruction. It isn't. That's the gospel message. David banks everything on it. And when you, not meekly, but proudly rise up, you're setting the gospel aside. You're setting the God of grace in the gospel aside and saying, I must take care of myself. I must defend myself. I must set the accusations straight. I must make sure that my reputation is defended in the eyes of all. Christian. Christian. Everything, and I mean everything that happens to you, everything that happens to you comes to you by the conscious decision of God that it come to you. That is extremely, extremely challenging for some of us as we look at some of the situations in our lives. But it is extremely, extremely clear. God who is sovereign is not half sovereign. That's a contradiction in terms. God who is sovereign is not half awake. That also is a contradiction of his nature. God has left us ample testimony all through the Bible. You can look at Joseph thrown into slavery. We can look at Job suffering all kinds of trouble. We can look at Jesus killed on a cross. We can look at David right here. Throughout all the Scriptures, God makes clear people do things and mean them for evil. But me, Christian, me having set aside my sin, my wrath against your sin, set aside, dealt with that, gotten rid of it, I determine this comes to you not for evil, but for good. If you're a Christian, you probably know Romans 8.28. I'm just saying, it's actually true. Really. It's actually true. And that's the well from which you can draw up meek perseverance in the face of all kinds of affliction and all kinds of trouble and all kinds of, in this particular case, wrong, biting, bitter, hateful accusation. This is good news. Because not only are you required to be like this as a testimony to the world about who God is and as a praise to God, but you really want this, remember? Remember, you really want this. And you can have it. There, there is right here, right here laid in front of you, such a critical piece of, of human relationship and of restful walking through life. Meek persevering that does not need to defend yourself and does not need to rise up in pride or get crushed with wounded pride. It is laid right here in front of you, available to you because the gospel is true. It is true. Gloriously true. And everything that comes to you comes from Him for your good. And he will. David says he may, I don't know, he means he may restore me to the throne. I don't know. He may also take my life. That may happen too. I don't know what's going to happen. But in time, in time, he will do you good. He can't do otherwise. Get that. He can't do otherwise. He's good. He's sovereign. He loves you. He has sworn 
that He has taken His wrath off of you, He can't do other than do you good. And He will do you good perhaps today, perhaps tomorrow, but for thousands upon thousands of eternal ages, He will do you good. Sometimes He brings consequences to you for for your sin. It is not because of His wrath. He brings it to do you good. It will have a refining, sanctifying purpose in your life now. It will produce good forever and ever. Fruit that lasts. Sometimes He brings things that, that come to you you know not where. They just happen. Really very difficult to pin them to your own sin because they just happen to you. He brings that too. Everything. He brings that too. You can meekly stand in front of that and walk on through it. And I am not saying, as an aside, I am not saying that that it is always inappropriate to try to stop some of that. It is clearly appropriate to tell the teacher when somebody is making fun of you in class. It is clearly appropriate to raise the question, hey, you know, that's not a nice thing to say. But said meekly rather than proudly. That's the whole deal. Said meekly rather than proudly. There is a wonderful hope delivered to you here, Christian. The assurance that the gospel, because the gospel is true, God always does good to you in everything that He brings your way and will in time do you immense and total good in the relieving of all trials, of all accusations, of all attacks. You will reach the Jordan and be refreshed there. You will. Because He is determined to carry you there. This is good news. What you need, you can have. What you want, you can have. A heart that finds in the God of hope joy and peace in believing. That by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It's my prayer for you and for myself this morning. That like David, you, a son, you, a daughter, would be marked by meek perseverance. A meek perseverance that is rooted in hope of a God of grace who has done you and will do you great good. Let me pray. Father, there is in in each of us who are Christians, there is a gap between what you want us to be, what you are making us to be, and what we actually are at the moment. And so this morning, Lord, I pray for your people here that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would open their eyes to the gospel. Give them believing hearts that that gap might be closed a little bit. I ask you to do it because it is a work of God. It is, it is a gracious work. Give eyes to see and hearts to believe, Lord, please. Particularly, Lord, would you help married couples for lack of meekness and lack of perseverance are devouring one another. Lord, it it applies to all kinds of relationships, but I pray particularly for married couples that you would give to, to men and to women, to husbands and to wives, that you would give them eyes by the power of your Spirit, eyes to see you, the God of grace, over them, doing them good, 
You would relieve off of them what they feel to be a need to defend themselves, to make what's right happen. You would create in them a humility, a bearing up, a setting aside of right. Do that in men first, particularly, I pray. Women too, but men first. Give them grace to set a tone. Tone of servant love. Lord, make that happen in in husbands. Make that happen in teenage boys. Lord, develop in the teenage boys in our congregation an attitude that is meek and perseverant in righteousness. The spirit of the age is one of pride and boasting. It always is. It is particularly of our age. And would you produce in boys who will become men, who will become husbands and fathers, would you produce in them an assurance of your goodness in the truth of the gospel and a willingness to surrender to you and let you reign Lord, build a church like that, please. Do a work among your people that gives testimony to what you are like in the world and that reorders and blesses them in their relationships. Bring this sweet thing to pass by the power of your Holy Spirit. Cause them to abound in hope. Hope that you do good and will do them good. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.